BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Freckled Foodie fam, buckle up because I truly believe that this is one of my top favorite interviews I have ever done. I have been fully enthralled by this person's content recently. I'm so excited and honored that she came on the show. I love our conversation. It brought out a ton of emotion for me. I think it's a helpful listen for anyone. It's inspiring. It's informative. Today, we are speaking with Nora McInerney. She is an author of multiple books and a creator and a podcast host of Terrible Thanks for Asking. She is a TED Talk host, speaker, whatever you want to call it, a TED Talker. I don't really know. She has really taken her grief from losing her father, her husband, and a pregnancy all within six weeks and has taken that experience and talked about it openly and honestly in an incredible vulnerable, incredibly vulnerable way and built a community and a platform. And she's fucking inspiring. And I hope you guys enjoy as much as I did. I loved, loved this conversation. Come on in, take a seat. thank you for joining us. And I know you just said your kids are not in school today. So that even more so, I'm so appreciative for you to take the time and sit down and chat with me. Well, it was easy for me to take the time because I didn't know that they wouldn't be in school today. <laughs> I, I like is to it be, because uh, of Veterans Day? It is Veterans Day. We take that, we apparently take that very seriously here in Arizona and uh, which, you know, I love that's great. And also like could have used a heads up, probably did get a heads up. But here's something that you will realize uh, as as your child gets older, uh, you're going to get so many emails from school. You can't possibly read them all or care about them all. That's it. No, it's not possible. I'm, I mean, I'm going to be the mom that's like, can I unsubscribe from this shit? Because I, I can't muted handle it. more emails in my fucking inbox. <laughs> Cannot take it. Um, Can't take it. So I have been a recent follower and listener of your podcast, and I am a huge fan. And I mean, your podcast, all of your work, your TED Talk, all of it. I really love it. And I want to start by asking, like, can you walk us through what you were doing before this part of your career began because I want to dive into everything you're doing right now, but I'm also personally curious of like where you were before all of this. I love an origin story. So I love this question because everything builds on itself in ways that you cannot possibly anticipate or imagine. I always wanted to be a writer as a kid. Uh, you know, when when given the opportunity or, you know, um, put under the gun like we do to kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are you going to do when you grow up? How it's like? How would I know I'm a literal child? I don't even know what most jobs are. I mean, I mean people still ask me that, and I'm 30, and I'm like, I don't fucking know. I don't know. I don't know. 30 is so young. It's just a fetus. I wish I would have known that. I see all these people on TikTok being like, I'm, I'm 30, or Bo Burnham's like, I'm turning 30. I'm like, 30 is a baby, and I wish I felt that when I was 30, but it's true. Um, Thank you. So it, things things build on each other in ways that you could not possibly imagine, even if you have a very good imagination. But I wanted to be a writer. And I remember as a kid, 
reading other people's books. My dad was always like, well, write what you know. I'm like, well, the only thing I know is my own life and nothing's happened to me. Like I, I, I read, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder, like her, her memoirs, mm-hmm. her autobiographies. I loved, I loved nonfiction. And I just remember thinking, oh God, my life's too boring. My life's too boring. And I wanted to be a, a writer after college, but it took a certain level of dedication and economic privilege that I didn't have. My parents were not going to fund a low-paying internship in media in New York City for me. That was not going to happen. So I took a job. I took a job in public relations and I just kept swinging across to different places, trying to make more money, trying to quell the anxiety in my heart that started about Saturday afternoon <laughs> and reached just a fever pitch by Monday morning and then didn't go away again till till Friday night. So I had about, you know, uh, like a good 22 hours. hours. Yeah, 22 hours of, of peace in my life. And um, I... I I thought of that time in my life when I was in it as just like such a waste, right? Like I I'm not passionate about this. It it was the agency life. I then worked in advertising and then I worked in-house at a at a corporation, but the entire life was about sort of a a false sense of urgency. Constantly I would get emails that said 911 and it would be like need a different headline. Like what? For a, for a, for an ad that people are going to click through? like, or hopefully, or, or minimize, this is before even social media ads. So it's, you know, really, um, for something people will fast forward through. Okay. Uh, for a press release, everyone will delete. Okay. Um, it was just like a really like false sense of stress. Um, and I was so miserable. I was so, so deeply, deeply depressed. And when I met my first husband, Aaron, he worked in advertising. He worked at an agency across town and he was, he was a designer. So I worked in words. He worked in pictures for to, to simplify it. And he was so happy. And it was because he didn't take any work um, personally. Like he was like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a designer and I like design. And, you know, right now I'm designing a, a dog food website. Am I passionate about that? No, but I get to do, you know, this gives me money and to, to have a house and to you know, pursue these like creative projects on the weekends. And it just wasn't that personal to him. Whereas part of why I hated my job was because I thought like, if I didn't, like, it just was all, it was all, all too personal, even though it was like about great clips, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, So I was dating Aaron. He had a seizure at work. It turned out he had brain cancer. And I'm just going to give you like the fastest version, which is I moved to an in-house sort of agency position working in in social media at a company. And Aaron kept working at the ad agency. And when he died in 2014, I just could not go back, like physically could not go back, couldn't go back, couldn't, could not do it, almost wanted to. It was like, "Eh, maybe, maybe tomorrow. Couldn't do it. And I ended up not having a job anymore. It it was sort of mutual, but also sort of just clear that they were like, please quit <laughs> so right. we don't have to fire you. Please don't make us be the asshole. And, uh, I, but I just wasn't ready. I was in shock. I was uh, horribly depressed and traumatized watching a person I love die slowly and then all at once. And it was, it was a lot. I was not in a good place. And I, I, I quit. I left that job, not really knowing what I was going to do and being really, really worried about it. And so I looked at the skills I had, which is I know I know how to tell a story, right? I know how to organize information. And I can just do this like on my own for some clients. And I sent five friends that I trusted a note that said, I'm going to do some freelance copywriting if you have anything let me know if you know anyone who could use, you know, a person who is only going to work during the middle of the night, but will meet all the deadlines <laughs> um, and won't go to any meetings in person, not a single one. Like, let me know. And that was sort of the bridge to keep us surviving, my son and I, who was two at the time. And what started to happen was I'd also kept this. Is the word. I'm so sorry you asked me this question because. <laughs> no, this. Uh, please keep okay. going. Uh, when Aaron was sick, I had started to write about our life um, on on a blog on Tumblr. And when Aaron 
was really sick when he entered hospice, I asked him to write his obituary with me, and we did. And it was very funny. You can look it up. You can read it. Um, and, you know, we, we revealed his cause of death, which was radioactive spider bite that led to years of crime fighting against cancer. We recognized his first wife, Gwen Stefani. And, you know, I, I, we didn't know they would print it. Oh my like, God. You know, it, this was this. We were both new to dying and we were like, I don't know. Like, will they fact check this? No, no, no. Ooh, it's an advertisement. It's an advertisement for your death and your funeral. Like they'll, you can write whatever you want in your obituary. And I encourage all of you to do this. Um, and it went viral in 2014 viral, which is a simpler time, a simpler time. Mm -hmm. um, very simple. Like one thing went viral a week or a day and this was everywhere. It was absolutely everywhere. And uh, a lit agent, several of them found, you know, my blog and had reached out and, asked, like, I think you should write a book. I think you have a book in you. And I was able to sell that book, my first one, It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too. And before that came out, I had an idea for what would become Terrible Thanks for Asking, which was a rejected book title. Really? And, and yeah. They were like, it's too negative for a book about your husband dying. So okay, well, let's make it a podcast. And like, then let's make a it a podcast. Following. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I made it a podcast because I was getting, still getting so many messages from people who had found the obituary who were spilling their guts to me, like telling me, you know, the worst uh, things that they had been through. I mean, me, a complete stranger and being so honest with me. And I thought, okay, I do this too. Like, I'll be really honest with a stranger on the internet and I will tell my family I'm fine and just yep. straight up lie to them. And uh, why are we doing this? Like, why are we doing this? And I noticed that there's a question that we all ask each other a million times in our life, probably more than that. And we answer it without even really thinking. And it's, how are you? And that's, that can be and should be an invitation for a deeper conversation, um, but it's really hard. So that's where the podcast came from. That's where this whole career came from was me just uh, not thinking, oh, what can I do that will, you know, I don't know. I, I didn't think that it would be, I didn't, I didn't know what it would be, right? I just wanted to mm -hmm. do something for the sake of doing it, not with a specific outcome in mind. And same with my book. I was like, well, I'll just write it. And if people buy it, that's great. And if they don't, oh, well, at least I wrote a book. <laughs> right. Honestly, I think that that's where so many success stories come from because you're not so focused on the outcome that you're obsessing over every small detail. You're doing what you're enjoying and you're just seeing what happens. And if it works, it works. And that's amazing. And if it doesn't, you still did it. And I want to say first, I'm very sorry for your loss. And I know you said, I think it was in your TED Talk where you were like, people keep saying, I cannot imagine going through that. And you were saying like, you know, we're all going to go through it. The yeah. two guarantees, the guarantee in life is that you will die and the people you love will die, mm -hmm. um, which is really hard to wrap my mind around, even though I know that conceptually it is very true. Um, but I also, I've never talked about this on here and now I'm totally staring and I want to get back to a question I had with what you were saying, but I do this weird thing and I don't know if this is something you've ever done or anyone has ever said this to you, but I say I can't imagine, but then also there are times where like I will go through these weird like daydreams almost where it's mm -hmm. as if someone very close in my life has died and now mm -hmm. we're at their funeral and I'm giving a speech and then I start crying and then I kind of come out of it and I'm like, how the fuck did I just get there? <laughs> You're describing my childhood. Uh, you're describing you my childhood. <laughs> this is like a whole chapter in uh, my first book, It's Okay to Laugh, about how as a kid, my sport was just laying in bed, imagining my whole family dying. I could not I go do it to, all the time. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's it's very normal. It is a way of sort of trying on, um, uh, trying on a feeling, trying on a situation, trying to sort of dull the edges of the knife when it arrives by saying like, okay, but I've already felt this and you haven't. Mm -hmm. um, and I hadn't. I would do the same thing and imagine, uh, I, uh, again, this is a story from, from the first book, but when Aaron was diagnosed, the first thing my brain did involuntarily was just shoot me forward to his funeral. 
Right. And I thought to myself, like, oh, my God, you are already burying this person who's in front of you, who is alive, who is, you know, is so present. And I I think that it is it is an all consuming thing, and especially when you're in it and when you actually are in it, in my experience, there's a lot less of that time travel because you know that what you have in this moment is so, so special. And I was a melancholy kid. My mom had this piece of art in her house that said, I'm going to get the wording wrong, but it was, um, no moment spent comes ever back again. Take heed and nothing do in vain. And I remember thinking, well, that's too much for me to handle. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a little too much to read over breakfast. Like, must I? Must I right. embrace every moment? Must I? But most of life is so mundane, so forgettable, so easy to just sort of like, oh, God, I don't know. What did I eat for breakfast last Wednesday? I couldn't even tell you what happened yesterday. I couldn't even tell you most days what year it is. I don't recognize 2021 as a year. And Neither. And I birthed a son in it. And right? I'm like, it's like what? I don't know. This doesn't really feel like it happened. I feel like we're still just in a, the extended cut of 2020. Mm-hmm. But um, those big, big, big moments, the the really happy ones and just the shocking or devastating ones, like you are so, so present for those times. And when I was present in them, I remember thinking back to you that that uh, sort of cosplay, right? That emotional cosplay of imagining a funeral or imagining what it would be like to lose somebody and uh, how inaccurate my imagination was. Right. Because I don't think you can ever actually imagine what it feels like. And I mean, would you agree with that? I haven't, I've lost people close in my life, but never a partner or a child or a parent. Yeah. I think, you know, no, we're, I think empathy is just your imagination, right? Like it, 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 Mm -hmm. feeling something with somebody Letting letting yourself feel the pain of another person is different from sort of imagining your own future pain. And I also think that a part of us sort of worrying about or playing through these future scenarios, let me just let this dumb dog in. Come on in. If you're going to scratch at the door, you have to come in. I like to talk My to her. She and does fucking the exact same thing. Right. I'm like if you, and then when I open the door, she steps back. Yeah. I'm like, like, you just tried to get in here. Well, now my dog knows how to open the bedroom door. So he just barges the fuck in whenever he wants. How big is this dog? Which is really fun when like you're trying to have sex. Um, He is 50 pounds. Oh, yeah. This dog's like eight pounds. I don't think she can do that. But I was was just (laughs) I wanted to make sure because I was like, oh, God, if I can't lock this dog out, we're going to have a problem because she's obsessed with me. Like, yeah, just too too close. Is she a pandemic puppy? No, she we got her beforehand. We have a, also a pandemic puppy, of course, and because um, why not just add some more chaos to life? Um, and she's like, she's chill. She's chill. She doesn't care about us at all. You know, well, she's amazing. like, whoever's with her is her favorite person. But this dog, this other dog that we've had for like five years is just a hundred percent obsessed with me. No one else exists. There is not oh, another I wish soul our in the dog world. was like that with me. He's just like, yeah, all right, cool. Oh, yeah. do you have food? I love you. You don't? Yeah. All right, I'm going to go in the bedroom and like chill by myself. He's like yes. an adolescent teen. Yeah. He wants nothing to do with us unless we're cooking or we're giving him food. Otherwise, <laughs> he just comes into our bedroom and hangs out on the bed all day long. Um, going back to your original point, I love the concept of terrible thanks for asking because I have this constant flashback to when I was in the corporate world, riding the elevator up to the eighth floor of our building. And it was always packed. And I just, I mean, it brings so much anxiety to me because it was, I would work out in the morning and then I'd rush to the office and then I'd be getting in the elevator. And that's when I would have like the post shower sweat and I'm dripping, especially if it's winter, I have like a scarf on, but like there's sweat dripping down my back and I'm dreading the second these doors open and I have to go sit at the desk all day. The whole thing I is can just feel this. I can feel this everything in yeah. my soul. Oh, totally. And like whenever I'm overheated in a space now, it's where it sends me. Like I'm in that elevator and trying to avoid small talk conversation with people. And everyone's like, How are you doing? 
And I'm like, oh, fine. I'm good. Thanks. Meanwhile, I'm on the verge of an anxiety attack, but yeah. God forbid I ever admit the truth. And it wasn't until recently, honestly, until after I had my son Liam, where uh, maybe like pregnancy as well. Yeah, I think it was pregnancy as well because I personally did not enjoy being pregnant and I didn't feel connected to the experience. I felt guilty for not liking it. I felt shame for not liking it. You know, I've dealt with postpartum anxiety and depression and there's been guilt and shame around that. And finally, I hit this point where I was like, why am I saying I'm fine? Like, I don't understand. And I started to really just throw people a fucking curveball when they asked how I'm doing, giving them the honest truth mm-hmm. and saying, I'm having a really hard time. I feel sleep deprived. I'm not happy today. Today is a dark day. I don't want to leave the bed. And it is so interesting, A, the reaction of people, but B, that we've been almost told or programmed to just respond without thinking to that question when it is such a possibility to dive into a deeper conversation and actually see someone and hear them. And I don't, I'm curious your thoughts of how do we program, how do we deprogram that and really encourage people to speak how they're actually feeling? For me, it is modeling and also trying to be a place where people feel like they can leave the truth. And that happened suddenly for me, but it also, I think has always been a, that's always been a trait of mine. Since I was a little kid, people would just tell me the truth. (laughs) People would just tell me, right? There's just something, some people like that. They love to share their secrets with me. Yeah. 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 I actually uh, had a human design reading and yesterday and she was like, are you I, – I cannot try to verbalize what she was telling me because it was fascinating but also so over my head. But one of the things was like, you know, people really confide in you. Like your whole life, have you been all of a sudden able to connect with people? If you're sitting at a dinner table at a dinner party, someone you don't know is suddenly telling you their life secret. I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. I just thought like, yes. I don't know if is I gave up everyone? like – Yeah. I'm like, I give off some vibe. I don't know what it is. Like, I know the details of every story of all the doormen in my building and I'll like text my little sister and my husband about it. And they're like, where did you get this info from? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Robert was just like telling me everything. I don't know. I, we had like three minutes. (laughs) How are you is great small talk for most of our relationships. Honestly, you know, it's, it's, you are not obligated by the way, people like you, people like me, uh, empathetic people everywhere. You are not obligated to become a receptacle for everybody's trauma. And you are also not obligated to bleed out and reveal all of your life secrets to everybody. Not everybody is a safe place for it. You know that. But in my experience, the people who truly love us and care for us, my siblings, you know, my my current husband, my family, my closest friends, they do need to know the truth. Mm-hmm. And even in some cases, you know, when, when things started, um, when Aaron was diagnosed, we weren't married yet. And um, I... I was out of the office, like sitting with him for his brain surgery. And I ended up going back to work um, when he came home because I had to because yay, America. <laughs> and <laughs> I had told my boss and and I, I was very lucky to have a, a great boss, a really compassionate person who understood uh, life and, and how hard it is. I told her, I don't want anybody at work to ask me about this. Work is going to be a place where I go. And I have uh, a complete escape and I'm going to compartmentalize everything. And, and I don't, I don't want anyone to ask me about it. If it, if any of the situation requires time off work or something, I will let you know, but like, just don't, don't tell everybody not to ask me about it. And I'm going to pretend like it's not happening at work. And she had that conversation for me. And when people you know, didn't respect that or literally just could not hold themselves back from asking things like, so is he going to die? Real question, real question. Hold that grudge still against that man who asked me that. Um, I would say I'm not, I'm not talking about this. I'm not talking about this. And I would just repeat that and walk away. (laughs) I'm not talking about this. I'm not talking about this. And I was lucky to have a boss like that, but you shouldn't have to be lucky. You know, that should mm-hmm. be, uh, we sometimes we're just so afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing that we just don't do anything or we don't say anything or we assume that how that person wants to be treated. And I think if you want to be 
a good friend, if you want to be a good colleague, if you want to be a good boss, like asking a person and saying, this is your experience. I want to be supportive however I can. I know that you might not even know what that means, but if I'm doing anything that's not helping you, if there's any way I can help communicate to other people what you need, let me know. And I also understand that you have the right to change your mind (laughs) as, as this experience goes on, as your feelings change that's really helpful. You don't have to know how to fix it. You have to, and you don't have to expect the other person to have answers, but you can say, I am here when you have some idea, right? I am, mm-hmm. I'm going to be a person who can take whatever action you need. I am a person, like I'm a person who's here and I don't know what to do, but I'll do, I'll do my best. Yeah. And I think it's hard because sometimes, I mean, A, a lot of us don't even know when you are grieving what is the most helpful, but then people who are not the person grieving feel so confused on how to handle it and how to react because I also think as a country, we haven't showed people how to grieve or I don't know if that's the right terminology, but it's such a taboo conversation instead of just asking how the person's doing and how you can help. It's either you ignore it or you dive right in and there's no middle ground. And I don't, I think that middle ground is probably potentially the most helpful. Um, But I'm curious if we go back a step to or we both agree that we somehow bring this out in people where they are sharing their deep, dark secrets. And, you know, similarly to what I do, you're sharing a lot of these incredibly vulnerable, emotional, and difficult conversations. And I think that's also why people then feel so connected and interested in sharing with you because, you know, it's almost like when you share something that's scary or honest or vulnerable, someone feels safe enough to share it back. And I'm curious whether you experience, maybe it's PTSD, I don't know if that's the right terminology, but all of these people that kind of offload on you, is that incredibly hard to handle after having gone through something already so difficult where you almost feel like you're potentially reliving it so often? Yeah. And part of the reflex for people who are going through something hard or feel like they're coming out of it is this, okay, how can I, how can I help somebody else right away? And I love that. I love that. And I do think the world is helped by whatever story you are willing to share. It will be helpful to some people and harmful to others, by the way. People would be like, you have to read this book. It's about a woman whose husband died. And I was like, well, my husband's alive. Why would I want to read that book? Right? <laughs> like, right. I want to believe my husband's going to live through this. Uh, that's that's what I need right now. Uh, it's I, I had this instant, and I, I Aaron did too, right? We like knew how lucky we were. Um, even though this uh, this had huge financial repercussions, even though he was dying, uh, we were still lucky. We still had many, many layers of privilege to insulate us from like total ruin, total disaster. And we wanted to help people. And I think sometimes we can misunderstand what we're doing. And people would say, well, God, making the podcast must be so therapeutic for you. Or, oh, you know, starting this widow's group must be so therapeutic for you. And a lot of those things were helpful and have been helpful. And also at some point were too much. And so I've stepped back from a lot of the work that just had kept me for years, simmering in other people's pain constantly. And I have had to have some boundaries put up. There were things that I stepped away from. I don't, you know, uh, I'd started this group called the Hot Young Widows Club. I stepped back and retired from the 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 widow community uh, at, at, a, at a large scale because I couldn't be, you know, um, responsible for the the healing or the emotions of, of thousands of people at a time. And I wasn't meant to be. I was just asked if I could do this thing. And because I, everybody loves to help. I I said, yes. Right. Like, Oh, yes. And then I'll do this. I'll do whatever you need me to do. So I, I, when I'm not making my show, when I'm not, uh, when I'm not actively working on a story or my own story or whatever it is, I only watch funny things. I don't Mm -hmm. listen to other podcasts like my own. I listen to dumb comedy podcast. That's all I do. Um, 
I will almost exclusively just watch funny things. I, you know, I read a lot of novels. I, I, I don't spend time or all my time going through every comment, every email. I have to have some avenues for it, like some safe avenues for it, which is, you know, coming through a a podcast request or running into a person who wants to talk. But um, I I can't spend all of my time on that. I, I truly think that was actually a thing that kept me from healing for a long time. I'm sure. Because even from my experience, when I talk about struggling with postpartum depression, a ton of my DMs are about that. And it's these women who are going through it and I want to help them so much. And I feel so honored that they feel close enough to me and they trust me that they're willing to share their stories and even ask for guidance. But at the same time, sometimes it does bring me back to that place or it makes me feel like I can't help everyone I want to. And then I feel kind of helpless in a sense, which is the opposite of how I like to feel and is the opposite of why I have a platform because I like to help others. And it feels just overwhelming and all encompassing. Because it is. And we're not actually, we're not built to um, withstand this much attention, negative or positive. We aren't. And we're not Mm -hmm. meant for this much uh, access to one another constantly. And I would worry, especially in the beginning, oh, if I don't reply to this person, they're going to think I'm like, I I don't care or I'm mean or whatever. And it's like, when I also look back at the past five years, I spent a lot of time hunched over my phone ignoring like my life and my kids because I would get a message from someone and they would be in pain and I would stop everything. I would stop everything. And I, it's not that I regret it. It's just that that is not a space that I can spend all my time in. You know, life is, is, uh, life is short and life is long and we are lucky for every moment that we get, but to constantly, constantly just pickle yourself, um, in the suffering of others isn't safe. It isn't healthy. Therapists don't do that either, you know, and they're trained mentally, Uh, you know, podcasters, writers, uh, uh, we're not (laughs) like, right. We're not like, I'll see you next week. Yeah. And and they see 20 people a week, period. (laughs) Right. 20 people a week for an hour at a time. It's, it's not just constantly, you know, pouring into their phones, their inboxes, but I will say that I do spend time when I am ready going through everything, I don't respond to everything, but I do read everything and I kind of ritualize it and I put my hand over my heart and I thank the person for sharing that. And, um, and then I, and I, I have to let it go. Right. And that's the phase I'm in right now of trying to navigate that. And it's difficult because I'm also, it sounds like you are as well, potentially a people pleaser. And oh, yeah. I, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm love to please. people pleaser because I love to please, but I also love to speak my honest truth and like sometimes just don't give a fuck about someone else's like, I can't explain it, but I, I love to please those who are showing up for me. I want to do everything. And I'm also but... not afraid to tell somebody to fuck off. So fuck off. Yeah. Fuck. I'm like, get the fuck out of my way and yes. don't come back. Yeah. All right. It sounds like we're the same person. So this is great. Um, right, yeah. That's, that's a very, it, it, to me, there's no dichotomy there to me that, that makes, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> okay, good. As long as you get it. Yeah. But yeah, it's hard. It's hard to feel this inclination to be there for someone, but then also the realization that you physically cannot emotionally or physically or feasibly. Um, And I want to, while we're speaking about this, I mean, not only did you lose your partner, but you also lost your father and a pregnancy within a month range. Is that correct? Yeah. It's October Um, 3rd, October 8th, November 25th. It was just, uh, and and guess how long it took me to go to therapy? I, I would months. hope the next day, but I'm going to say that's not the case. Eight months. No one ever, no doctor was ever like, wow, you should go to therapy. Like none of Aaron's doctors were like, wow, do you need a sedative? Like, no, I'll just right. not sleep for five years. I'm good. Like, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think you ever move on from any of that, but I don't, I can't fathom even coping with that. And I think maybe there are listeners who 
have gone through one of those experiences. I would be shocked to say that someone has gone through all three that quickly. I don't think that that's the case, but for anyone who has gone through one or maybe similarly two or maybe all three of those, like, did you find a tangible mechanism that helped you not cope? Because I don't think we ever, I don't know if I like the word cope, but just wake up every day and honestly survive. Uh, Yeah, my son. Yeah. And that's it. I don't think I would have if I didn't have him. And I say that like pretty honestly. I just don't think I would have lived through it. Yeah. Um, And I mean, maybe, I don't know, but I I definitely didn't feel I was uh, not thriving. I was not coping. And other than that, I was actually coping really, really, really badly. I did not have any I had no mental health, none. I, I, I just numbed out with alcohol and with the internet. I was, I was always online. I was always online. And part of that was, you know, I would just lose myself in Google photos, you know, just like, let's go back to this, this day a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. Um, let's look through every tweet we ever exchanged, every, every, every text that we've ever exchanged. Let me try to archive. Let me try to gather. Let me try to, I just want it all. I want it all. I want everything. And part of it too, is just like, let me engage in something that's so far. Let me just scroll and scroll and scroll and just get so far out of the present and my body and whatever I'm feeling that I just don't feel anything at all. And it was it was dark. I did not have, uh, I didn't have any coping mechanisms, none, nothing healthy. Was it therapy that eventually helped you continue along other than your son? I mean, I'm sure having a child for me, honestly, like going back to what we were saying in the beginning, the death vision, not visions, but those kind of imaginatory, oh, what would this funeral be like for this person has gotten a little bit stronger ever since having a kid. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's my funeral. Mm -hmm. Um, Oftentimes it's my funeral. And again, I don't know if that's normal or common, but I'm just going to pretend like it is. So other than having a child, which I think is the number one driving force for any of us to do our best in any realm, especially if it's just staying alive, was therapy the most beneficial thing for you? I think it, it was therapy. I also think it was time. I also have done, I think, a lot more in the past year and a half than I than I I, I don't know. I, I wish I could pinpoint like this is the thing that was like it. And mm-hmm. I think that initial therapist was really, really helpful very instrumental. I think having Matthew, I met, um, my current husband and, uh, from almost like the minute I met him, I felt like I actually could grieve because there was someone, um, present with me who was not burdened by, uh, having known me before you know, or having any expectation of how I should be or who I should be. He was just there. He was just there. And I think that helped. And I think, uh, yeah, I've done, I've done a lot of different kinds of therapy, especially in the past year. Uh, and you know, I've done like, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. I've done EMDR. I've done, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy. I've done groups. (laughs) And I think, I, I, I wish I could point to like one thing, but it was all of those things. And it was also having this community that I'm not, um, not a formal part of anymore, but this community of people who had lost their partners, um, and who I could get online in the middle of the night and just, you know, type something to you. I had had a few very close widow friends and uh, having people Relate. who share a part of your experience, mm-hmm. everything is so personal and it's universal, that kind of loss. That was really, really helpful. That That is what helped me feel seen and normal. And I think it's also, again, I can't speak from experience, but I think 
from difficult things I've experienced that are not comparable, but the pendulum of emotions can feel so confusing. And the only thing that's helped me in both those highs and those lows, and I can speak from for instance, the experience of postpartum is having someone who's similarly been through it or is in it to know that there's no judgment and that there's a almost like a nod or head. Like, yes, I I too have thought like, wow, what the fuck just happened to my life? I can love this child so much and I can really resent certain parts of my life and I can gr- miss and grieve the old version of myself. Like I'm not a lunatic for thinking those things. And I think you only can find that at its deepest level through someone who has similarly lived in those shoes, no matter what the circumstances are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I just think casting your net as far and as wide as you can, and also being extremely patient. I thought that a year would make it feel better, right? Like just, mm-hmm. just a year. It just takes a year. And my friend, Dr. Anna Roth is a therapist. She is a person who's also been through a lot of shit. And she always says, it's not the time that passes. It's what you do with the time. And right. so that first year I didn't do any work. I, I kind of, I kind of went pretty light in therapy and I certainly was not uh, in a place to acknowledge and work on you know, the ways that this had really, really affected me and changed me. I just, Mm -hmm. I was so angry. There was so much anger. There was so much rage and I couldn't even identify it as grief. And of course it was. Of course. I'm curious, you mentioned Matthew, your current husband, and I hope this is not an invasive question. I have this weird thing where I feel oddly comfortable speaking around the topic of grief and death. I think because through therapy and conversations with my family, I think I can pinpoint it to when I was young, we lost um, one of our closest family friends who was like my second father and our our families are basically one um, in 9-11. And because it was such a public way of losing someone, it became a discussion that we had with everyone we saw. And mm-hmm. then we've similarly, similarly lost um, other very close people in our lives in very kind of public almost, it's an odd thing to have lost two very close people in 9-11 and then Hurricane Sandy and had my family's very intertwined in the whole situation. And I think because of that, I was raised in such an open forum and discussion on this topic where I just don't maybe have the wherewithal or things that hold back normal people in these discussions. And I just kind of dive in. I'm curious, what was it like to fall in love again after lo- losing your husband? Oh, I mean, um, a wild ride because I felt so bad about it. <laughs> right. I just That's felt why so I'm bad wondering. About it. Yeah. I just felt horrible about myself and um, did not think that I deserved happiness and was so deeply unhealed and unhealthy and, Matthew had gone through a divorce, but he had done a lot of work on himself, like a lot. And it really, really sat with that for a while. And it it was sort of evident just how steady he was. He had not experienced a significant death loss, but a divorce is a loss. Okay. It's Mm -hmm. like the grief is real. The, The whole healing process is the same, no matter what kind of loss you've experienced. And he he was so comfortable with my discomfort and so gracious and that's maturity, right? That's like going through a, a going through something hard and realizing like, oh yeah, you know, like life, uh, life just doesn't turn out the way you think it will. And I, I don't know, there's just something that was so, um, it was, it was just really hard. And, I made it hard. I don't think anyone else would have made it hard for me. I really wanted it to be hard. And it was also so natural. And Matthew and Aaron are such different people, but falling in love with them was similar in that it just immediately happened. It was easy. Like it, something clicked and 
like I was safe with this person and that also allowed me space. Having a person, a steady person there for you uh, helped me grieve. I don't think I really, really felt things as deeply as when I started falling in love with Matthew and I realized just the enormity of what I lost with Aaron, which is like there was never going to be any more of this. And I was never going to have that future with him, even as I was stepping into and creating this future with a person that I was so, so happy with and and comfortable with and who let me, you know, also be deeply unhappy. <laughs> like, let me, like, let me be. Was, and I, I think ugh. what you, it, what you said speaks such volume for many instances of many people's lives is that coming to terms with two opposing emotions and the acceptance that they can coexist. And I think that's really hard for a lot of us to move through and to sit in this realization or experience that can be so incredible and exciting and wonderful. And then also at the same time, really fucking emotionally difficult and sad and just hard. And that those two things can happen at the same time, because I think we've been taught that you're either happy or you're sad and that's all. And, and it's like, if, I think if we had more understanding of this, we we do know, we know that in our hearts, we know it when we're experiencing it, right? Like if you cry at a wedding, if you, you know, like are happy to see somebody that you haven't seen in a long time at a funeral, you understand, like we right. do not experience uh, emotions sequentially. Like we can and do feel them um, simultaneously. We feel them like they're all braided together. And we're also so afraid of anything negative in the U.S. This is like a very Western culture where it's like, yeah, but, 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 but how quickly can I alchemize this into something better? How quickly? And I, I bristled against that. That's also why the podcast is called Terrible Thanks for Asking, because everybody wanted me to be fine. I wanted to be fine. Of course. And my fear with falling in love with Matthew was that, well, as soon as people see that I have some happiness, that I I love this person, they are going to think I no longer love Aaron, that I'm no longer sad about Aaron. They will think this is a replacement. It is not a replacement. They will think that this cancels out something. It does not. And you can feel that when people are like, well, you know, be grateful you fell in love as if gratitude which is a wonderful, wonderful feeling to have, which is a great practice, right? To have gratitude. It is not a cure for your your grief or your It sadness doesn't take away the struggle. fact that yeah, Aaron it's not died. A, it's not a self. You know, it's not, well, well, if you are grateful, you can't possibly be sad. No, you you can absolutely <laughs> do both. And in fact, watch me. <laughs> right. No, I totally agree. I mean, and that's something I talk about a lot is this existence of two different emotions and coming to terms with it and sitting in it and realizing that we can feel them. Mm. And it is hard for people to understand. And I also think you're right. This country specifically, everyone wants to just, it's almost like the suffering Olympics. I talk about this a lot when it comes to anxiety and depression. It's, you know, mental health does not discriminate. And if you're in, my therapist once said this to me, because I had a lot of I had a hard time during COVID when I was anxious or depressed. I'm like, well, I mean, look at me. Like, woe is fucking me. I'm at my parents' gorgeous house in Florida quarantining. And like, think about the rest of the world. I don't have a right to be upset or uncomfortable or anxious. Mm. And my therapist said this once where whether you're in a yacht or a canoe, if that ship is sinking, it's sinking. It doesn't mm. matter what type of ship it's, it is. It's sinking. And I think we feel this need. I, I think it's important to be empathetic and to acknowledge your privileges and to assess where you are and show gratitude to your current state. But I also think it's detrimental to constantly compare emotions when it comes to feeling sad or negative ones to someone else's and saying, well, they have it worse. I don't deserve to feel this Absolutely, way. Absolutely. Because you deserve empathy too, and you deserve it from yourself. Right. And write it, you know, in maybe in the middle of our conversation, you said, you know, like, well, I haven't been through something comparable. And it's like, well, 
you know, none of them are comparable. You know, True. even, you know, we lost our dad. Uh, we have, I have three siblings. That's four versions of our dad. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it, we, we all lost our dad and we lost him in different ways because my relationship with him was different than, you know, Completely. my sisters or my brothers. And I, I think we want there to be, or we sort of imagine that there is, and I understand this because I never want to come across as saying like, oh, well, like, you know, uh, uh, yours is worse. Who wants theirs to be worse, by the way? <laughs> like who wants to win and be like, yeah, no, mine sucked more. But it's true. This, this also comes from just like a, like a, a dearth of compassion as a culture. And there's a reason why we want to, you know, appear as though, you know, we're not, you know, I'm not being too grabby. I want to make sure you know that I know yours sucks too. And it's because like, we do feel like there's a limited amount of empathy out there. And I understand why I understand yep. why, because it is hard for people to, uh, to be present with the struggle of another person. It's hard. It's it, everybody wants to, not everybody, but it's, it's sort of our nature to say things like, well, like, yeah, you have postpartum, but like, you know, like you also have a husband. So, and, right. it, and at least you got pregnant. Yeah. At least, at least, yeah. well, at least you mm-hmm. got pregnant. It's like true, true, true. And, you know, trust me, anybody who's going through something, they do not need help finding the silver lining. Like they will find it. They will find it on their own. Nobody needs it pointed out to them. It's fucking silver. Okay. They'll see right. it. Um, <laughs> they'll see it. They'll see it when they want to, when it appears to them. Um, and I think we sort of weaponize that against ourselves and against other people when we say things like, well, at least, oh, well, but, well, you should. Those are not like I no one wants to hear it from another person and we'll say it to ourselves as if we are not people. I think I I totally agree. And I think for me specifically, when you pointed that out, that I said that, it's interesting if I unpack that because we're treating this as my therapy for the day. <laughs> if I unpack that, a lot of it is A, I don't want to undermine what you experienced mm-hmm. by comparing it to something. I've gone through because in reality, yes, has postpartum been difficult for me? Of course it has. Would losing my husband and my father and a pregnancy that close in time be more difficult? A hundred percent. And I can't deny that. But also if I go way back to another thing I mentioned is that in my childhood, losing someone so close to our family and watching it deeply, deeply impact my father who was in the building next door and my mother who was with her best friend watching the towers collapse and my best friend in life losing his father, all of those things. I don't think at that age I ever felt I was able to grieve and still in today's, my entire life, feel like that's my time to grieve because it was so much worse for everyone else involved. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, it it obviously impacted me, but I my dad came home that night in reality. Yeah. Um and it's confusing especially for a kid and I don't know. I, I don't know why I felt inclined to share that, but I think that's something for me that has really stuck through with me my entire life when I'm thinking about grief or things I'm going through. And it's it, it does inherently go to those suffering Olympics because at such a young age, I was thrown into that. And I felt that I wasn't able to be the one grieving. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very real. It's also, I, this is maybe something that comes with time and maybe something that we're all so all of our experiences are so unique. We all can go through, I think 9-11 is a great example, right? That it is a universal or, you know, a very American experience. Um, and especially the closer you sort of are to that epicenter, there's that uh, illustration on 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 grief and, and comfort where it says, you know, the closer you are to like the point of impact, right? To having lost your husband or your dad or, you know, being there, what you need from people on the outer rings is comfort and what you need at, what you need coming in from the outer rings is comfort is people validating you and saying i'm so sorry 
And what you also need is the space to sort of project that pain a little bit further out. And so I'm at the epicenter. If you think about it, everybody's sort of at the epicenter of their own experience. There's like a, a bunch of concentric and overlapping Venn diagram circles for every situation. I'm really getting lost in this thought. I did not take my Adderall today, but like, <laughs> keep going, ride like, it. It's it's uh, it, like it is real. It is real for every single person, and it also when compares. Oh God, Sarge explains like. Yeah, I I don't love nobody likes nobody likes their 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 experience to sort of be compared against another person. You're not doing that by saying like, oh, so I went through this thing and this is how it it felt uh, for me. Because you're also not saying like, oh, well, like you know, nine eleven was like the absolute worst for me because I lost the most biggest thing. But no, like you're talking about your version of this experience, and I was unable for many years to see this as anything other than an immediate impact on me, my son, and uh, Aaron's family, right? And Aaron had friends who -hmm. loved him. Uh, My family loved Aaron. They were there, right? Like this this happened Mm -hmm. to so many different people and in so many ways, but um, there are just so many versions of a story and they resonate with people in such different ways. And for any time that I made another person feel like it didn't count as much for them. I am sorry because it did. It counted, it it counted just in a different way. And we're not, I don't think what we mean to do is to say like, oh, there's some, you know, big general measuring stick and yep, um, yours is worse than mine or mine is worse than yours. It's just like, it's all individual. It's all individual. And even with the pandemic too, yes, we are all going through it. We are all being affected by every single person that you come into contact with, whether or not you love them, hate them, admire them, are envious of them. They are all going through this experience for the first time. Not one of us is an expert and we're all going through this differently. Like you, 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 whether you have, uh, like, like your therapist said, I don't know why I'm still talking, but it's like (laughs) many things can be true at once and always are like, they always are. This sucks for you and it sucks for somebody else. And it, it may or may not uh, suck worse for them, but it for sure sucks differently. Agreed. Also, you saying that is me literally at any point of a podcast sometimes. I'm like, why the fuck am I? I'm like, what, what, where, where am I going I? here? Where was Someone I? Someone throw me a lifeline. Yeah. Like, what am I doing? Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know that you have children that are not in school, surprisingly, today. But I feel inclined to ask, how are you doing today? Today, I am. I honestly, I woke up feeling like weirdly, like kind of icky. I don't know what's going on, but um, I am. I'm doing okay today. I'm doing okay today. And one of the things that I'm very lucky to have a little a, a thing that made the past two years much easier. The thing that made the pandemic much easier for me, and also more frightening in some ways, is that my husband stays home with the kids. My husband That's stays amazing. home with the kids. So you know what? The kids aren't. Uh, aren't going to school today, but they are occupied as always. We love that by the man who does literally everything for them. <laughs> so, <laughs> kudos to him. Yes, we yes. love a modern man. We love a modern I'm man doing it. again. And no one would be like, "Wow, this man has a stay-at-home wife." They'd be like, "Yeah, that's right, right, um, yeah, okay." But Good. when I tell Did people, you- <laughs> "Man who stays home," they're like, "You know what? Oh my like, god, what a well, it's the bare minimum." Yeah, as we were saying yes. before we started recording, literally the bar could not be closer to the floor if we tried for like a man getting applause as a father yes they change a diaper they're a fucking hero he's he's a goddamn hero they're like every day he makes them breakfast every day i'm like yeah that's how often they eat breakfast okay (laughs) (laughs) oh Oh, my god it's something else well nor thank you so much i honestly think that this was my favorite interview I have. Oh gosh, well, thank you, and uh, God, God, God have mercy on your editor. But um. no, you were amazing. For people who listened and want more, where is the best place to follow you? 
Oh, I mean, I'm on Instagram. It's Nora Borealis, which is a play on the Aurora Borealis. Not my last name. It's confusing for people. I've been wondering. Millennial. We used to. The internet used to be about a six screen name. You youths don't understand. (laughs) Okay, so. So yeah, that's my, that's my Instagram name and my website too. And, um, both are probably good. And I've, I have a podcast called terrible things for asking, and I've written many funny books about sad things. We love it. Everything will be in the show notes, you guys. And Nora, thank you so much for being on here, taking the time and for normalizing this conversation and just being so honest and vulnerable. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. I love doing this more than anything in the world. If you could be so kind as to rate and or review the show, share a screenshot on your Instagram story, whatever you feel like doing to show some love, I would really appreciate it. Obviously follow at Pod on Instagram and me at Freckletootie for more content. Thank you for being a part of the FF fam and I hope you have a wonderful day.